Welcome to the Art of Faith. I'm Pastor Joshua Kapczynski, and my co-host is on vacation, Pastor Joel Fairley from First Baptist Church. So I'm going to do a solo one, uh, primarily because I am in a series, a, a sermon series called The Art of Faith, kind of uh, just piggybacking off of our podcast and just looking at looking at art and its interpretations and how it can be applied biblically and how, in many ways, there's a double meaning to things. So today's topic is the art of revelation. And before we begin to talk about uh, revelation, end times, uh, the apocalypse, the end of the world, end of days, uh, before we get into that, I just need a disclaimer that I am by far no end times expert. I am not, I am not a theologian. Uh, I'm not even an armchair end times buff. Uh, I know enough to speak into the situation. I know enough to, to know uh, what is true in the book of Revelation, Daniel, and Ezekiel. Those, those three books, in, in addition to parts of the gospel and Thessalonians, they are all weaved together, and they all reference each other um, to tell us what to prepare for for the end times. And lots of confusion and different perspectives on how it's all going to go down at the very end. Uh, and I could, we could easily spend hours talking about the different opinions and viewpoints and, and ways to interpret Revelation, Daniel, Ezekiel, uh, how they all intertwine, uh, whether it's pre-trib rapture, post-trib rapture, um, the millennial reign, is it, is it pre-millennial, post-millennial, uh, mid-millennial, like are, where are we in the whole story of, of the end times? Are we, are we in it? Is it going to come? So there's a lot of questions that frankly are hard to answer. And so my intention is not to answer the, the burning questions. is like, when is, when is the end going to come? When is Jesus going to return? That's not my intention. I actually want to look at the art that humans have created in interpreting the scriptures. It says a lot about us. And I think, actually, I think that the art that, is, that, that people have used to interpret the, the scripture can show us uh, what's inside of us and what we can focus, what we focus on, and even how we can misinterpret the scriptures by our own preconceived notions and what we are actually bringing to the Bible versus what the Bible is actually saying. So we'll, we'll see some of that fun stuff today, and um, it, it will be. Hopefully enlightening, um, but I also got to tell you it will, it might be a little little sobering. I preached a sermon on this last Sunday uh, on the on calling it the art of revelation, and I focused primarily on one specific piece, which is the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And so there's an image that I shown, and it is a classic image. Uh, Every art historian will be familiar with Albrecht Durer. Uh, he, is, he is the Michelangelo of the Renaissance. Um, again, uh, if you're listening, I will do my best to describe the picture, 
but it's best to to view this one in, you know on the on YouTube. But Albrecht Dürer, um, he he made this print of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and it it looks uh, like a hero's poster. It looks very uh, uh, kind of creepy, kind of scary. The the four horsemen are are riding together, uh, you know, coming out of out of a dark place, and they're they're going to destroy the world. So let me read the scripture out of Revelation chapter six, and then uh, I will I will um, give a description of the painting and how maybe some of the things that that we missed or that Drewer missed and, and the importance of it. Uh, Revelation chapter six. I watched as the Lamb, the Lamb of God is, is Jesus, so he's, he's opening up um, these seals. It's the beginning of the revelation process. Um, Jesus is being revealed of who he is and his place, and uh, everything is winding down. The end times are coming, and it starts with the opening of these seals. I opened the first of seven seals, and he's the only one worthy to open them. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a loud thunder, come, and I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and was given a crown, and he rode out to conquer, bent on conquest. So our first rider is, is a white horse. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, and then another horse came out, and a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To give them a, a to give him to, to him was given a large sword. Verse five. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, "Come," and I looked and there before me was a black horse its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hands then i heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine okay that's kind of weird i'll explain that in a bit verse seven when the lamb opened up the fourth seal, I heard a voice say, um, I heard the voice, the fourth voice, the living creature say, come, and I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider's name was Death, and Hades was following close behind him. Hades or hell. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, plague, and the wild beasts of the earth. All right, pretty dark stuff. And as I talked about in my sermon, the, the, the imagery of the four horsemen has been burned into our collective consciousness. This is obviously kind of some, some scary type of imagery that, that we read here. And in the painting, Drewer depicts all four horsemen coming at you all at once. And that is the first of the misinterpretations of the passages because there's seven seals and they get 
opened up, these seals get cracked open one at a time. And so this is artistic license from the very beginning. And it's interesting because um, whenever we think about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, we think about the, all four of them coming at us all at once. And Drewer, Albert Drewer in 1448, uh, he's the one that first depicted this. Uh, he set the tone for this image in our mind. And from this picture forward, every other artist depicting the four horsemen of the apocalypse has all four of them coming at you all at once. The first, the white horse, it's the conqueror bent on conquest. That is an easy interpretation that in the coming years or in the end times that conquest is going to be the the motivation for for world leaders like they're just not going to care anymore um they're not going to want to keep the peace they will be bent on conquest so in the future whether it is in the near future or the far distant future we could be looking at another hundred years frankly uh in the in the far future war will be it will be common it will be it will just it will be inevitable um, that horseman is going to be all over the place uh, the second horseman is the red horseman and uh what, let's see what did he do again um I'm sorry. It's okay. okay. I heard the second living creature say, uh, come, then the, then the horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. Okay, so that's an interesting passage in that um, mankind is going to be left to its own devices. Uh, there is a there is a bit um, in in the epistles of Paul where he's talking about how do you deal uh, with somebody that has been completely rebellious inside of a church setting. He says that you need to abandon the individual and leave them and, and turn them over to Satan for for their destruction. And that, in a sense, that is what's going on here. That sounds really dark and heavy stuff, but uh, what is going on is that the red horseman is being ushered in to take the grace of God off of the planet and, and allow men to, to fulfill their heart's desires. If their hearts are desperately wicked, then that, they're just going to run their course. And, and basically, God's not going to intervene anymore. He's going to just let them... Let them do whatever they whatever they want to do. You can even can, one way you could even think about it is as if the image of God is being removed from mankind. So there's two parts of human nature. The first part is that we were born into original sin, so we have in, inherit in us the fall, the fall of mankind. And uh, Paul, I mean, David talks about, uh, you know, my heart is dark and desperately wicked. So he saw that. Again, this is a guy that was after God's own heart. He saw that in himself, that there was a darkness to him. 
And yet, he, David also says, I, I am fearfully and wonderfully made in your image. So that's the, that's the fascinating part about who we are as people. First and foremost, we are made in the image of God, in Imago Dei. So there is a divine spark in humanity. So I would say that, that humankind is first good and then has been tainted. So there, there's always that philosophical question. Is man inherently good or inherently bad? So I'm going to skew on the side. Well, God is made, or man is made in God's image. So therefore, man is inherently good. It has just fallen. So when the red horse comes, I think that uh, that grace is lifted, and mankind is going to act more like animals. Now, the third horse is one I want to focus on because this is an interpretation uh, from Drewer that actually, I mean, he doesn't come out and say it, but based off of this scripture being read wrong, uh, we have developed false theologies. So the, the third horse is the black horse, and he is, um, you know, the white horse has a bow, you know, the red horse is cool, he's a red horse. Um, but the third rider is carrying scales. And Dewar depicts the, the rider carrying scales. It's very... Um, dramatic he is the he is the third rider he's actually he's actually the, the biggest and most prominent rider in the in Drewer's depiction of the four horsemen of the apocalypse the first rider has a bow the second rider has a sword uh and then again the biggest character in front and center in Drewer's masterpiece is this black uh, horse with its rider holding the scales and and then the the pale horse uh, with his rider death and hell is following is the fourth. But again, I want to focus on the third one and the one that uh, Albrecht Dürer is clearly focusing on. And so let me just ask you a question. What, what do you think the scales represent? What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you, when you think about the four horsemen of the apocalypse right, coming at you? and uh, bringing, you know, ushering in the, the last judgment. Uh, what, what do you think of when you think about scales? I know this is a silly, silly thought. All right, so some of you might be thinking that the set scales are symbolic of your soul being judged. And it's a bad, it's a bad interpretation. That is not what they're symbolizing. In the description of the, of the black horse and the rider with the scales, it goes on to say, you know, you're going to get some barley for this amount of price, and you're going to get some wheat for this amount of price, and three quarts of barley for a day's wage, and do not damage the oil and the wine. So that's all a little confusing. And you might think that the wheat, the, the barley, the wine, the oil... Well, that must be super symbolic, and um, you know, let's make something out. Of, let's make something out of it that it's not. It's actually pretty straightforward. It is saying that in the end times, 
the scales of commerce are not going to be balanced. So this isn't about balancing your soul, whether you have um, done more good in your life than bad, and, and you know this black writer, he, he's going to judge you based on, on, on your merits. No, it's going to say, in the coming future, there will be unjust scales that will lead people into oppression. So a day's wages is not going to be able to provide the meal for your family. That's literally what it's saying. And, you know, it will, and the revelator, John the revelator, will go on to discuss how uh, our ability as believers to actually purchase is going to be taken away because we won't be able to use currency. Um, we'll have to have the mark of the beast in order to trade. Now, I don't have time to get into all the conspiracy theories on that, but the truth of it is, is that uh, our purchase power will be dictated by a higher power. And if we're not in line with that higher power, well, we won't have the ability to, to participate in the marketplace at all. Unjust scales is what's going to take place, not the, the measuring of your soul. It's important, and we'll see, we'll see this scale pop up in some other art that we'll be looking at in a few, in a few minutes. But I want to highlight that you know, our, our initial thought to think that, okay, that scale is there to measure what we've done in life. Um, that idea, that concept is actually very ancient. It goes back to ancient Egypt. And before there was a Bible, uh, the Egyptians had their own little Bible, and it was called the Book of the Dead. And this is what the Egyptians did when you died. Uh, when, when you died in Egypt, you would go to the underworld, and you would be judged. Um, kind of like, you know, maybe in a similar matter, well, I'll show you the difference, but in a similar matter that, that we see a judgment that Jesus is going to take place at the end days. But in Egyptian mythology, you get judged. You're standing before the court, okay? So you're standing before the gods. And basically, they open you up, and they rip your heart out, and they take your heart, and they put it on an Osiris, the, the, the god of the underworld, the, the god that judges men's hearts. To take your heart, you know, put it on, 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 one, on the scale, and then on the other side of the scale... Um, they put a feather, the feather of truth. And so they're literally weighing what you've done in your life. Uh, your heart, is it heavy with sin? Is it heavy with darkness? Uh, does it unbalance the feather of truth or not? So that concept of, of your life being measured goes back to Egyptian paganism. And unfortunately... We see it here, and unfortunately, we have misinterpreted it here in the, in the scriptures. Fascinating stuff. All right, so um, Albert Jure, this painting changed how we perceive this image from the Bible. And, uh, and again, we'll, we'll go on to see some other problems with it. All right, um, 1498, any, anywhere between this period, there is an explosion of of art. So this is the early Renaissance. Uh, we are coming out of the Dark Ages. Uh, just for reference, in Europe, 
and actually a majority of the world, uh, they just came out of the Black Plague. They had a plague that was going to, well, that killed millions, countless millions. The plague started in the sand somewhere, I think, because Kajikistan is where they determined that the plague finally started from, made its way all over Europe, all over the, the, the Middle East, killed countless millions. Uh, I mean, we think that COVID was bad. That one was really bad. And so that plague was also burned into the their consciousness. And so they had this, this issue and this fear, and rightfully so, that their lives could be taken at any moment. So life was very, it was harder than, than, than the modern life. Uh, they, their ability to, to produce well, wealth had been limited until about this, this point in time. And so they're coming out of a season of extreme fear, of extreme oppression, um, the, the, the divide between the rich and the poor was a lot larger than ours. I mean, I know we're complaining about it, and rightfully so. We should be complaining about the divide between the rich and the poor. But it was worse in the mid Middle Ages. But coming into the Renaissance, we're getting a birth of, of new money, the, the, the new rich, the new, nouveau riche, and the bourgeoisie. And so there is a, a renaissance of art. There is a, a redistribution of wealth. Uh, there's a lot of exciting things that are taking place. And uh, in that, artists like Dreuer have been commissioned to make artwork. Um, the next one is Peter Bruegel. And Bruegel uh, is just, uh, I mean, I don't know why they've given this guy so much time to create, but Bruegel creates um, some images that, I mean, you thought that Drew was disturbing. Uh, Bruegel's images of the fallen angels is very disturbing. Some of you might be familiar with Hieronymus Bosch. I will do a... Uh, um, an art of faith with Bosch and the in heaven and hell on that one someday. But this is the same flavor as Bosch. It is bizarre. It's psychedelic. There is a lot going on. It's very cartoony. Again, this is early, early art. And when you're looking at it, it feels like a really bad nightmare. And, and again, this is this is supposed to be Christian art, but I mean, in order for me to have a vision like this, uh, not only would I have to be extremely depressed and oppressed, I would probably have to be on LSD and mushrooms all at the same time. Like, this thing is so weird and trippy. And, and Hieronymus Bosch is just as weird and trippy as this. And so we've get, we get images of angels uh, in heavenly places warring with fallen angels and then you know we're seeing them uh taken down in, in the creation uh the creation of hell and it it's very it's very disturbing and the reason why i'm bringing this one up not frankly all of these dark arts um or dark art work is that there was a preoccupation with disturbing imagery 
in the Middle Ages. Like, so they were, they were creating this stuff. They were being inspired by Scripture to make it as bizarre, <laughs> scary as you could possibly imagine. And if you read, read Revelation, yeah, you let your imagination go, and you're going to think up some pretty creepy, scary stuff. And it's clear that the early artists had a preoccupation with judgment, hell, and torment. They were cranking out artwork on a regular basis and looking at this. You could say that they were obsessed with it. And I would, you might say, well, that's really, that's really disturbing. They should probably go to counseling. Probably true. But it is quite unfair for us to judge them and their motivations for creating stuff that, well, it's just, frankly, it's just bizarre. Um, their motivations are very similar to our motivations. So believe it or not, this is popular work. So Albert George, the, the, the first picture that I showed you, they were cranking those things out. They were printing them off, and everybody could have one on in their bedroom po uh, wall as a poster. Um, this Peter Bruegel, the Flemish painters, uh, they were rock stars of their time. They would they would have been the equivalent of. Steven Spielberg. Everybody wanted this kind of stuff. And the new rich, well, they were commissioning it. They were buying it. They were, they were giving it art direction. And, and, and they were giving um, the free time for artists to allow their imaginations to go hog wild. And before the Renaissance, that just wasn't possible because well, basically everybody's starving to death or dying of disease. And now we've got some room where they can, they can begin to create. And so again, the reason why I'm showing you this crazy one is because, again, we're like, man, they're weird. So I want you to take a moment and uh, I want you to think about all of the apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic, end of the world type of movies. They're not even Christian. But the zombie apocalypse and you know contagion, all of these like really scary, uh, depressing, end of the world type of movies, um, which are extremely popular right now, even horror movies. And so, we have the same type of uh, fixation on this surreal, bizarre. Um, end of the world type of stuff. So I would say our concepts of the apocalypse are inside of every person. Everybody has, and I think that the market proves it because again, we're buying the movies, we're renting the movies, we're making the movies about the apocalypse. So I think that there's something inside of the human psyche that knows that someday the end, the, the end is coming, the end is near. And you know, think about the, the 12 Monkeys movie. It's just, it's, it's just kind of who we are. So not fair for us to judge the medievals for making stuff that makes us feel uncomfortable. I would say 100 years from now, if um, you know, people in the future saw what we were watching on Netflix, they'd be like, what's the matter with those people? They're really screwed up. All right. Uh, 
the next one is a more of a modern expression from William Blake. William Blake is actually a little bit later than this, a lot later. So he's a early 19th, excuse me, 18th century, 19th century artist. So he's going to be writing, actually he's an author, writing and drawing around, around the 1800s. And his work is very surreal, very um, uh, spiritual feeling, and he kind of abandons all of uh, the traditional styles. He's going to set the tone for some abstract work. But the reason why I pulled up this Blake, again, it seems very dark. Uh, this is the story of the ten virgins. These are the five virgins that weren't prepared. And I'm going to be preaching about the ten virgins coming up in a couple of weeks. I'll probably delve in a little bit deeper uh, on this, on the artwork of the virgins coming up as well. But I wanted to show you this, the contrast between um, the, the Blake and the Bruegel. A couple of centuries apart, same darkness, same feel. It's pretty, it's pretty grim. Um, and Bruegel or uh, Blake actually pushes his artwork into the the realm of psychology. So he's looking at he's looking at the human experience of spirituality from a psychological standpoint. All right, more on him later. Um, Let's look at the judgment, the final judgment, which is again something that we all um, we all kind of deal with. So this is Ham's hands hands uh, memling, and this is a huge giant triptych, and this this piece it's large, it's detailed, probably from first glance from a modern eye. We're like, I don't I don't really like it. But I can guarantee you, um, in the 15th century, people loved this piece. This was sought after. Uh, it was commissioned. It, it, it's what we call a triptych. So there's three major pieces. Um, there's the centerpiece, and Christ is clearly the center. Uh, and then two side pieces. One is heaven, and, one, and the other is hell. And it's the judgment piece. And if you were to fold it in, you have the covers of the piece. And on the cover, we have the two individuals, or specifically the, the, the one individual, that commissioned this work to be made. So a little bit of vanity going on here. So we have a banker from Italy who commissions Hans Melling to paint this. He he gave he gave him some art direction clearly he said you need to make sure that you put me and my wife on the cover not not just uh, us on the cover but make sure that you put us on the cover uh kneeling and praying so um the commissioner the guy that that made this he's a, he's a famous banker he's a Medi medici from italy he is part of the new reach and he is commissioning this piece to be hung in a chapel and this is the fascinating part it is not a uh, it's not a chapel that the catholic church has built 
it's a it's a it's a chapel for the the banking franchises of of Italy. Um, it's a, it's for the guild. So it'd be like uh, if you're going into Chase Bank to make a deposit, um, they would uh, they would put a little prayer room uh, in the closet, a little you know maybe put a cross there and. You know, you could light a candle or something like that at the, at the bank. So that's what they were doing. So faith was a very important part of society, even in the marketplace. So the banking system, uh, the faith was an important part. And so when you go in to make your deposit, you're gonna see that <laughs> you're gonna see this triptych of uh, of Jesus judging. Not just the earth, but the universe. Um, yeah, so maybe that makes you think about how you spend your money. I don't know. But the interesting thing about this piece is that it never made it to the bank. It never made it to where it needed to be. So the banker commissions it. He he takes a he takes a you know he makes sure that he's on it, so everybody knows that he paid for it. Uh, the this painting would be equivalent to uh, commissioning a $60,000 60, piece of artwork, and that's just to make it, and that does not include what its value was as the artist. Um, Melling in Bruges was listed in the registry as one of the top five richest men in the city, and he was an artist. So he was making a lot of money painting paintings. One of the richest men in one of the richest cities in Europe. Go figure. Um, I don't know if that happens. Well, I guess it does happen today. We talked about some modern artists that have done record sales as of late. All right, so not only does he paint himself into his commissioned artwork, he paints in his friends, and he even paints in his enemies. Um, front and center, we have the resurrected Jesus Christ in victory. He is standing on a golden sphere. Uh, initial thoughts might think, well, he's standing on the world. No, it's, it's bigger than that. He's literally standing on the universe. Uh, so this is it's a fascinating concept because... Um, you know, at this point, people still kind of thought that the earth was flat, but it was up, to, up for debate. But he's standing on a golden sphere that symbolizes the universe, all creation, not just what our creation is. Um, looks like he's kind of sitting on or leaning on a rainbow. This rainbow is separating heaven from earth, and Jesus is backlit from... Uh, a sky of gold, so this is clearly, this is, this is heaven. So this is, this is the ultimate experience of God's presence and God's glory. And with Jesus, we have his 12 disciples, uh, plus that, you know, the 11, Judas didn't make it, so they got to fill in. And uh, John the Baptist is also here with us. So there's 13 guys, one gal, we have Jesus' mother, of course. And they they are they are in heavenly places, um, and they are waiting to receive the faithful. 
that the angels are flying around in heaven with specific items. So we have a cross, we have a whipping post, uh, we have the hammer and nails that were used to crucify Jesus. This is just all symbolic of the death and resurrection of Christ. Uh, he's got a sword on one end and he's got a lily on the other end of his neck symbolizing that he has victory over death. So, fascinating image of Christ the King. And under him, under the rainbow, if you will, under the rainbow, uh, almost as predominant as Jesus. I mean, even though I'm looking at it, it looks as if the angel is actually bigger than Jesus. And so right in the big, like close to the center, is Michael, the archangel, and he is judging in here on earth. So again, heaven is above the rainbow, below the rainbow is earth. And so this is the daily life. I don't know why they made everybody naked, but everybody's naked in this. So uh, I should probably should have given a warning for all of us sensitive Christians. But yeah, there's a lot of nudity going on in this painting. Michael is doing something, and it's, it, initially it's hard to see. But if you zoom in a little closer, and if you look at what he has in his hands, initially you might think that he's got a spear and he's spearing people. Uh, if, again, if you look a little closer, you will see that that's not a spear, that, that, that he's holding a big giant scale. So, just like our friend in Revelation chapter 6, uh, where he has a scale, that gets misinterpreted. And now we have Michael, the archangel, doing exactly what Osiris the God of the underworld is doing. And Michael is literally weighing two people. Uh, one on the right side is clearly not coming out too well. And then the other one on the left, he's, you know, it looks like he's praying, looks like he's, he's pious. Okay, so this is kind of funny. Uh, one of the things that medieval people like to do, not only do they like to paint themselves into the paintings, well, they would also paint their friends in and, and their enemies. So one of the apostles, I forgot which one, but one of the apostles is actually the Duke of Burgundy, who was Melling's friend, who was one of his patrons who gave him some money. So he paints his friend into this painting. And in contrast... Uh, this poor sucker that Michael is, is, is weighing, well, that's another banker that was, uh, like, we don't know if they were enemies or not, but it's clearly somebody that this guy knows, and he made it, and, well, he, he's going to go to hell. So, so you could paint your enemies in being tortured. We know that uh, Michelangelo did this, actually did this with himself uh, in the Sistine Chapel where... Um, one of the martyrs, um, I forgot, Bartholomew. Uh, so the martyr Bartholomew is sitting there, uh, and he has been, his skin has been cut off, and it's just kind of hanging there. Um, and Bar Bartholomew's face is Michelangelo's face. So Michelangelo painted himself in as the martyred, tortured Bartholomew. 
So anyway, Melling does this with somebody he doesn't like. And I guess, I don't know, we kind of do this in our own modern day artwork. Uh, we've seen it as of late where if uh, a certain political figure is not liked by a certain rapper, uh, well, they, that rapper can write him into a video and make fun of him and uh, it can be his artistic expression. And uh, yeah, so we still do the same thing. But yeah, I think it's funny that you could do that. So Michelangelo, or sorry, uh, uh, My Michael, the archangel, is clearly misrepresenting the judgment. Uh, there's nowhere in the scriptures where Michael, or My Michael, the archangel, has scales. Again, that's a, it's probably a misinterpretation of the scripture and a misinterpretation of Albert Durer. All right. Uh, on the left are the good people that made it through. Uh, they they ended up on Michael's scales, and their their hearts were light enough to go and walk into the into this beautiful Gothic heaven. Um, down at the very bottom left, I mean, you can see how close it is that some of these people got in. Like this poor guy, and again, they're all naked. I have no idea why they're all naked. We've got a big giant Peter. We know he's Peter because he's holding the keys to, to heaven. Uh, so he's there welcoming everybody in, giving them a handshake. But yeah, it's like they were they almost didn't make it. They're standing on the edge. And but they're they're come on on in and the angels are welcoming them. And then uh, on the right side of the painting, it's just these poor souls that get cast into the lake of fire and they're being tortured by demons and like it's just awful. One of the beautiful things about the Bible, it can communicate truth by contrast. And, well, yeah, there's a literal heaven, there's a literal hell. Um, is it going to look like this? Probably not. But what we do know is that heaven is, is a place of, of peace and grace. And unlike our unlike our ancient god Osiris, where you get judged, and if you fall short, uh, well, you're, you're going to be eaten by a crocodile, or you're going to be thrown into Melling's hell. Well, this is not true. So the scales don't exist. So what does get us in, it's not whether we've done more good than bad, what does get us into, you know, entering into that that uh, golden place is whether you accept the grace of God. I mean, it's kind of a cheap way in, but that's, how, that's what God has done for us. So it is, it is not by how much you've done. It's not by how, much, how good you have been. Um, it's all the grace of God and just submitting to, to what he's done for us and recognizing him and accepting his grace. We are saved by grace through faith and not by works. In my opinion, this is communicating a works-based salvation, a works-based judgment. One of the other things, too, is that the way that I, that I read Revelation and the way that I read the Last Judgment is that um, Jesus is, he's, he is the judge. It is true that he will judge us. Um, 
and that might seem scary. But the truth is, you want to be judged. You want to go through judgment because the ones that choose not to receive or not to respond to the grace of God, well, they don't, they don't get judged at all. They just don't want to go in, and they don't go in. So if you get to go in and you get to sit at the Lamb's uh, foot, that's a good place to be. And so we shouldn't fear judgment. We should, we should, we should be, we should be looking forward to, to Christ judging us. And it's not going to be as horrifying as this image in my pick, in my imagine, in my opinion, it's not going to be as hard to, to fathom. So, all right, I think I'm done for right now, but we're going to continue with the art of faith uh, and specifically the art of revelation. My next topic, we'll be talking about uh, the ten virgins. Uh, there's a lot of biblical artwork out there on the ten virgins, so we'll be picking up Blake again and some of the other uh, illustrations and images of, of that, of Jesus returning and some people being ready and some people not being ready. And what does that mean for us uh, on a specific con context? Specifically, uh, what I am studying right now and what I'm looking into is that there are specific signs that have been revealed that legitimize prophecy. For example, one of them is was fulfilled in 1948. Uh, in the book of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, it says that Israel will return to the land. So, bam, they were scattered. They were they were they were sent off all over the world. They lost their they lost the Holy Land, and yet it was prophesied that someday that they will return. That that prophecy was fulfilled in 1948 after World War II and this, the Zionist movement, and they came in and they established, and the world recognized them as an independent nation. That in and of itself is a miracle that, that ought to make everyone pause and reflect and see that biblical prophecy has come true. The second major sign is that uh, the scriptures say that Israel will become ridiculously prosperous. In that amount of short of time from 1948 to present, Israel is ridiculously profitable. Uh, it is one of the wealthiest nations in the world, and it's the size of New Jersey. It produces more millionaires than any other country in the world, and it currently is the leading nation in startups. It is ridiculously prosperous. And there are more Nobel Prize winners that are Jewish than any other nationality. So there's a blessing that we see to the Jewish people for the whole, all of mankind. That prophecy also was, was fulfilled. There's a lot of weird other prophecies in here that haven't come true. And it makes you wonder, like, are we going to see the temple rebuilt? Uh, are we going to see big giant dragons come out of the water? Are we going to see an antichrist? I mean, are, like these are legitimate things that we have not seen yet. Are those things going to take place? Uh, have they taken place? I believe that 
story, parable, whatever you want to call it, of the ten virgins will give us some insight into that question and how to, how to, how to approach that question. So, till next time, uh, God bless you guys, and thank you so much for listening to The Art of Faith, and specifically on this topic of The Art of Revelation. There is obviously some incredible, vivid art that depicts Revelation, but there's also an art to knowing what Revelation means to you. And I want to encourage you to pray about that, to read through the scriptures. You don't have to be a Bible expert to read Revelation, uh, but read with the Spirit, you will understand that there's an art to understanding what's going on. God bless you guys. I'll see you next time.